All right, today's scripture reading, um, you can find it in the bulletin on page four. Um, we'll be reading Romans 6, ch- chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning, good morning. I'm your substitute teacher for the summer here. Um, I have the privilege of being with you guys this summer and look forward to getting to know some of you and enjoying picnics and worship services and whatnot. Um, I'm also really happy to support Eric and I'm glad that hopefully this will enable him to feel more free about taking some time away. Uh, I'll be here seven Sundays through the summer as well as just more generally be available. So if you have any pastoral issues or just want to meet and connect, you can feel free to reach out to me at paul at trinitypresoc.org. Well, this summer, we are going to walk through Romans 6 to 8. Just some light summer reading, perhaps. Um, It is a powerful explanation of the new life that we have in Christ. Paul argues against some misunderstandings that might... uh, distort or undermine this new life that we have. And he tries to persuade us to believe this new reality, this new way of seeing ourselves in a new kingdom. And more than giving specific commands, I hope to help us gain a new picture of what the Christian life looks like. And I hope that's going to be an encouragement because it's been a rough season. It's been a rough few years, I feel like. There's been so much anxiety and division, and for a lot of people, it's, there's been a lot of losses, like deep losses. And then more recently, we've had all these 
mass shootings in Uvalde and in Laguna Woods and just this past Thursday in Iowa. Things are heavy. Things feel heavy. And spiritually, perhaps, some of us, maybe it's been a long season of just being in survival mode, just trying to get by. I mean, for a long time, church didn't feel like church. And maybe it's just been a spiritually difficult time. Well, I'm hoping Romans 6 will help encourage us. I'm hoping it will give us a grander vision, not just of who you could be, but a grander vision of who you already are. Now, I have to warn you, uh, Romans and our passage today and through the summer, this is rich, dense, theological stuff. (laughs) Um, So I want to invite you to keep your minds sharp and your hearts open for what I hope will be a very rich journey. First, a quick summary of Romans 1 to 5. Just a little context. Paul has been explaining that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are sinners. And in particular, Jews, Jews who thought that because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, Jews who had the Mosaic law, they thought that they were right with God. And Paul says, no. No, that's not true. Uh, Instead, people are saved by faith. And he points back to Genesis, Abraham, and and shows how Abraham believed and it was credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteousness by believing. And Abraham was also given a promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In other words, it's always been by faith and the Gentiles have always been part of God's plan. And so Paul argues, if righteousness was through the law, and the law was given to the Jews, then Jews could get right with God. But but that's not true. Righteousness isn't through the law, because with Abraham, we see that he was credited as righteous through faith before the law was even given. It couldn't have been through the law. There was no law for Abraham. It was by faith. So that by faith, Jews and Gentiles, those who have the law and those who don't have the law, can be, can be right with God. That God is not just God of the Jews, but then God of all nations. And then at the end of Romans 5, Paul explains, well, there are two humanities. Those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. Those who belong to Adam are condemned in sin, but those who belong to Christ are made right with God by grace through faith. And that leads us then to chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles or your your, um, bulletin open just because we'll reference a lot of verses here. Uh, Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul had just said, we are not under sin, we're under grace. So, So, if we're under grace, can we keep on sinning? If more grace means more sin, I'm sorry, excuse me, more sin means more grace, then, well then, why don't we just keep sinning? So that there will be 
Even more grace. In fact, that was the language of Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So let sin increase, <laughs> that grace may abound. Hallelujah. Yes? Amen? No amens? No, no, no. Um, Paul essentially raises the same question again in verse 15, which says, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? So does grace mean we can sin? That grace may abound all the more to the glory of God. Poet uh, W.H. Auden wrote, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. How wonderful. How wonderful. Maybe if you're exploring Christianity or maybe if you've been in church for a while. Yes, how wonderful. <laughs> maybe we like this grace thing. Now, to be clear, this is wrong, okay? This is wrong. Paul is going to argue against this. We call this, an, this error cheap grace or the, the error of lawlessness or licentiousness. Grace does not mean that we can live as we please. But why? Why? Why shouldn't a Christian continue to sin? I mean, if grace means we should not Fear God, fear punishment, wrath has been, we've been freed from all God's wrath. If we're not supposed to try to earn God's favor anymore, well then, why not sin? Like, why not? Well, what's stopping us? Why try to be holy? Because that's hard. <laughs> why do I, why do I want to do that? I'm sure some of us, maybe we've asked this question. Maybe some of us are quite intrigued by the question even now. Well, Romans 6 raises and addresses the question twice. Once verse 1, verse 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. 15 to 23 next time to answer the question, why? If grace, why not sin? Paul's basic response is the question itself is a problem. The question itself betrays an understanding of the gospel. That we're not seeing the bigger picture. That our gospel is too small. Paul is saying that he, what well, Paul is wants to give us a bigger, fuller picture of what the Christian life looks like. A bigger picture of the gospel that we might see our lives and we might see ourselves differently. And I hope if you're exploring Christianity, I hope maybe this, this journey might clarify what is it that we believe? What is it that we cling to, that we are claiming Jesus has done for us? I want to offer two parts of this picture that Paul is trying to offer in addressing this question. First, we've had a regime change. For the original audience, the main categories through which they saw people were Jews and Gentiles. They were those who were God's chosen covenant people 
had the Mosaic law, given the promised land, and then there was everybody else, the Gentiles, who did not have the Mosaic law, who are not God's covenant chosen people. And Paul says those are no longer the right categories. It's not about being a Jew or a Gentile. All have sinned. No one is righteous. Not Gentile, nor Jew. Instead, Paul talks about those who belong to Adam, those who belong to Christ. Those who are under law versus those who are under grace. If we notice the language of Romans 6, there's a lot of verses here. I'm just going to blitz through. You'll get the idea. Notice, notice the words he used. Verse 6, enslaved to sin. Verse 9, dominion over him. Verse 12, sin reign over you. Verse 14, sin have dominion. Verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22, slave, 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 slave. I mean, it's just repeated all over the place. The picture Paul has is that we are slaves under the dominion of a power, under the reign of a master. You might recall Jesus uses the language of kingdom. There is a kingdom whose citizens have pledged allegiance and submission to a king that has dominion and reigns over his people. This is not about we get a ticket to heaven. This is not about debts canceled. We're freed from the debt of sin. This is not even just a not guilty verdict, and then we can just go live our lives. That is not biblical Christianity. Jesus died so I can get to heaven is too small a gospel. The picture of what our salvation includes is a transfer of one kingdom to another kingdom. I want you to imagine that you're in the Russian-controlled Donbass region of Ukraine, right? You've had to live with a constant eye over the Russian authorities. Did I say Roman? The Russian. Russian authorities. Uh, you have to think about the military. Don't upset anybody. Just do what they say. There's fighting, fighting, fighting. I want you to imagine the Ukrainian forces press through. They get control of the Donbass. And then somehow, by a miracle, truce is declared. And both sides agree that the Donbass is now fully and formally Ukrainian. It's part of Ukraine. There has been a regime change. There is now a new authority, new rules, new laws, a new society, a new kingdom. To use biblical language, it is a picture of the Israelites being freed from Egyptian slavery. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're, they're approaching the promised land. And Paul is saying, to ask the question, since we're under grace, why don't we keep on sinning? It is to fail to understand what we have been saved from. <laughs> Paul is essentially saying, 
don't go back to Egypt. What are you thinking? No, no, that's, we just, that's what we've been saved from. Why are you living like you're still in Egypt? Why are you living like the Russians are still in control? This is what you've been saved. You are no longer a slave of sin. That is no longer whom you serve. That is no longer who you are. There are just two humanities, in Adam or in Christ. There are just two modes, under law or under grace. There are just two dominions, serve sin or serve God. And the transfer between one to the other is so radical so profound, so transformative, the language Paul uses, it's like dying and rising again. There's been a regime change. Second, Paul tells us our baptism is a theological picture of a profound spiritual reality. We are united to Christ. Verse 4, we were... Buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In particular, Paul is pointing that we've been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So that what happened to Christ in dying and in rising again has happened to us. What is true of Christ is true of us. That in his death and resurrection, we participated. We died. We rose again in Christ. Some of us might be familiar with the language of being covered with the righteousness of Christ. Like we picture a robe just wrapping our bodies. That's good. That's good. But like the language of union with Christ takes it a lot farther, right? It's not just a robe. It's that we are like hidden in Christ. We're not just covered. We are mystically joined and completely immersed. He's just, I, 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 we, are, we are brought in. There is a union and a oneness. I was trying to think of like some metaphors to use. I was trying to say, okay, it's not like we're linked on the chain. No. It's not like we get on the bus. No. Instead, the language is, the biblical language is like we are parts of the body with Christ as our head. Like we are joined. Like we are one. We are united. Or we're like a branch to the vine. It, it, organically, livingly, livingly? You connected. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the plant. We are, that's us. That's me. That's we're united to Christ <clears throat> so that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just Jesus, right? Our old selves died that day. And so verse 2, we are now dead to sin. Verse 6, 7, we are no longer enslaved but set free from sin. Our union with Christ in his death suggests that we are no longer, we are not just justified from the guilt of sin, we are also freed from the power of sin. Because that has died. Its rule, its reign over us is 
dead. We have transferred from the dominion of sin to the kingdom of God. There's been this regime change. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't rise by himself. We resurrected with him in new life, resurrection life, kingdom life. That is our story in Christ. So I want you to picture, rewind 2,000 years. There we are on Calvary, Jesus on the cross. And as we see Jesus on the cross, we realize that's my sin on the cross. Dead, defeated, destroyed. Three days later, there we are at the tomb. Jesus rises from the dead and we see in him, oh, whoa, you know, I'm rising from the dead, victorious over death, new life, resurrection life, power life. And then imagine yourself saying, so Jesus, can I just keep on sinning now? Is that okay? You'd be like, don't you understand what just happened here? How could that question even enter your mind? Don't you see what Christ has just done for you? It's the wrong picture. It's the wrong category. Like how, the question itself is a problem. Paul points us toward a triumphant, victorious celebration. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God in new resurrection life. That is who you now are. Now, some of us might be thinking, the problem is, Paul, I don't feel that way. I don't look that way. Sin is not dead in my life. Uh, it's very much alive, actually. And new life? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have new life, kind of, I think, most of the time. But it doesn't really seem that amazing, that miraculous. I mean, less of rising from the dead and maybe, like, woke up from a nap. I don't know. Like, it's not that miraculous. It feels, quite honestly, rather ordinary. So what do we do with Romans 6? A word of explanation and then a word of instruction. I don't think this passage is actually telling us that we won't struggle with sin or effortlessly live for God. Paul is not saying everything is easy and automatic. That would be, in my opinion, to misunderstand what Paul is actually trying to teach us. And we see that in the passage. Because right after this, Paul, verses 11 to 13, says, Consider yourselves dead to sin. Let not sin reign. Do not present your members as instruments of to members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourself to God. Paul is giving these commands because the assumption is it's not automatic. It's not easy and effortless and 
We will struggle. We don't always live for God, which is why Paul then says, so present yourself to God. And then in Romans 7, we will see very clearly that the battle rages on. There is a struggle. There is a fight. So we need to nuance what Paul is saying. There's some nuance. There's, there's, more, there's more layers to what Paul is trying to teach us. So I want to introduce this idea of the already, not yet. We are already united to Christ. We are already in a new kingdom. But we do not yet enjoy the fullness of these realities. Something transcendent has already begun, but not yet completed. Verse 4 says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Meaning, we have been united with Christ in his resurrection. All right, so follow with me. We are united with Christ in his resurrection. And one day, that means we will physically, literally rise from the dead. <laughs> we believe. We will, our bodies will be transformed to heavenly bodies. Mortality will take on immortality. We will enjoy perfect intimacy and union and fellowship with the Father. Because we have been united to his resurrection. But obviously that has not happened yet. Not yet. To be clear, it has already begun. That resurrection life has all, if you are in Christ, that new life, resurrection life, has, we live it today, already today, but not yet in its glorious fulfillment. Which is why today there is still a struggle. We also notice if we look more closely at Paul's language, Paul is not saying Christians will never sin. We most certainly will all the time, as do I. Yes. But the language Paul uses is that sin will no longer have dominion. We will no longer be enslaved. And the idea here, I think, is Paul saying we will not be persisting in sin. We are not defeated by sin. Instead, there is to be more and more victory over sin. We already enjoy resurrection life, even while the battle with sin continues. I want you to remember, the context with which, in which Paul is saying all this is arguing against cheap grace, arguing against the question, so why not keep sinning? Can't we just keep sinning? And to that, Paul is saying there's been a regime change you are united with Christ, keep sinning. No, 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 no. That's no longer whom we serve. That's no longer whom we are. Not that we are sinless. Not that we don't struggle. But Paul is saying, implicitly saying, there must be definitive progression away from sin toward holiness. That is the gospel reality. The regime change. Union with Christ. In other words, I'm going to argue, what is it to be a Christian? A Christian by their very nature no longer flirts on the edge of sin. Can, can I do this? Can I do this? 
but instead is moving away from sin. That's what a Christian is. Or to put it another way, and we'll talk about this more next week, a Christian is someone who is less attracted to sin and more attracted to God. That is a new life we now have. So what do we do? If all this theological mumbo-jumbo was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. Just, you can zoom in now. Join with me here. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to not live in sin, to pursue holiness? How are we to more fight the battle? I just wanted, I want you to zoom in. I'd like us to zoom in on verse 11. We're just going to focus on one instruction. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul has been saying, you've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. You are dead to sin, alive to God. So what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? He says, see yourself that way. Think of yourself that way. Regard yourself that way. Let that change how you see yourself. It's interesting because up until verse 11, verses 1 through 10, Paul has only been explaining this gospel story. Here's what the gospel means. And then he says, so this is what the gospel means. See yourself the way the gospel is telling you you are. In fact, it's not just Romans 6. The whole book of Romans from 1 Through this verse, verse 11, there have been only statements. Paul has not given any commands. There have been no instructions until verse 11. This is his first command, and it's essentially saying, here's the gospel. Now see yourself the way the gospel says you are. Is what theologians call the indicative imperative. The indicative imperative. That's just like grammatical language of saying statement, command. An indicative is a statement. Today is Sunday. Indicative statement. An imperative is a command. Come to Pentecost picnic. Command. Instruction. Do this. The structure of Paul's thought is indicative imperative. Statement, command. Truth, instruction. And that's not just the structure of this passage. That's the structure of Paul's thought. And that is the structure of the gospel. The indicative truth comes first. And is the basis for the command. Other religions give the command. And then the statement. Be good. Imperative. Be good. And if you're good enough, maybe God will accept you. God will accept you if you're good enough. Be good, imperative, is the basis for the indicative that maybe God will accept you. But we say in Christianity, no, it's the other way around. God accepts you. Period. Statement. Gospel truth. God accepts you. And on that basis, be good. 
It is the statement that comes first, the truth that comes first, that empowers the command, not the other way around. We see that throughout Scripture. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Statement. And what's his command? Let your light shine. Let your light shine. Here's who you are. Statement. Light of the world. Live like it. Shine, baby, shine. Statement. You are God's holy, chosen people. Statement. Command. Live holy lives. Because that's who you are. That's who you are, not the other way around. If you live holy enough, he'll be, you'll be his chosen people. No, you are his holy chosen people. Live like it. That's what we see here. Here is the gospel. See yourself that way is his command. A pastor friend shared about um, a story about a two-year-old girl that a family had adopted from overseas this orphanage. And when the family would sit down for dinner, the little girl would start crying. In fact, she'd scream. But it wasn't because something was wrong. It was because in the orphanage, that's what the kids did. You see, the kids that would cry the loudest would get fed first. And the orphanage didn't always have a lot of food, meaning the kids that cried the loudest not only got fed first, they probably got fed the most. You see, in that orphanage, if you want to eat, if you want to survive, you scream. That's how you survive. But she's not in the orphanage anymore. She's been adopted by a loving family where there is more than enough food for everyone around the table. She'll be more than taken care of. In this family, you don't have to scream. You don't have to cry. I think that is the picture Paul has for us. He's saying, why do you still live like you're in the orphanage? In the old world, in the old dominion, it hasn't fully sunk in. We're in a new family. We're in a new reality. And Paul is saying, see yourself here, you are in a new family. You are adopted. You are in a new kingdom. Your old self, that's dead and gone. We're not there anymore. <laughs> We've, that's no longer true. That's not where you are. You are not in Egypt. You are not an orphan. You are not a slave of sin. You are a beloved, adopted, precious son, daughter of a good, loving, generous God. Don't scream. Don't see yourself as an orphan. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a glorious creature of God. See yourself this way because this is what's true. One day, one day, you will no longer struggle with sin. One day, you will no longer struggle with selfishness, pride, greed, materialism, insecurity, deceitfulness, anger, lust, fear, guilt, shame. Gone. One day, you will no longer idolize material things. 
professional success, temporary pleasures, having the perfect family, having the perfect image. You will no longer idolize those things. One day, you will be filled with true, pure love and joy and peace. One day, your heart will overflow with sheer delight for Jesus. And your desires will fully and only be for good and godly things. One day, you will be so holy that you will have nothing to hide. Nothing to be ashamed of. There will be no secrets because, because through and through, you will be Glorious. C.S. Lewis said, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day, this is like the people right next to you here, or maybe it's you, one day, that dull, uninteresting person may be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. If we saw it now, what your heavenly being would look like, we would want to just get on our knees. So glorious, so beautiful. Follow me. That is who you are. That is who you are. Are you have been united with Christ in his resurrection and one day it will come in fullness. And though that seems very far away, do you recognize that is who you are? That is what Christ has done for you. Paul is just saying, see yourself that way. See yourself, regard yourself, think of yourself that way and let that change how you live. Paul wants to change the picture of the Christian life. He wants to change your picture of yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Our imaginations are too small to understand how much you've done for us. Our minds are too small to understand who you have made us to be. But we pray by your spirit, Lord, allow the truth of the gospel to sink in that we would believe it to be true true of me, true of ourselves, that it reshapes how we see ourselves. Sin? Why not keep sinning? Just seems like such an alien question when we see who we are in you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.